we got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay. If you own a small business, you might be asking yourself, can Tax Act help me do my business and personal taxes? The answer is yes. If the answer was no, it would have been pretty ill-advised of Tax Act to have asked that question in the first place. And Tax Act prides itself on not doing ill-advised things. In conclusion, Tax Act can help small business owners get their personal and business taxes done. Tax Act. Let's get them over with. Introducing Celebration Key, your key to paradise. Unlock Carnival's all-new exclusive destination at Grand Bahama, where you can dive into clear lagoons, try all the water sports, or unwind on a mile-long, pristine beach with breathtaking sunset views. This vacation paradise has it all. Celebration Key, welcoming guests in summer 2025. Carnival, choose fun. Copyright 2024 Carnival Corporation, all rights reserved. Ships Registry, the Bahamas and Panama. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife, And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, my friend, it's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives, and it is another episode of me traveling. (laughs) Ended up uh, heading to Washington, D.C., and actually I'm 
out at my favorite place, Montgomery County Air Park in Gaithersburg. That was my home airport that I learned to fly at. So it's always nice to come to my second home and see how uh, how the world is, especially in in this COVID and little town aviation, if you will. Um, it's nice to see airplanes flying since the weather's so nice here. Yeah, my little airport that I learned to fly in is soon to be a shopping center. Oh, jeez. They shut it down almost two years ago, and it's soon to be built over. Hate to see that happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll tell you what. When I learned to fly at Gaithersburg, it was literally a piece of pavement in the middle of a cornfield. And, of course, they've built up, you know, industrial and houses and everything else. But it still has that little little airport feel, thank goodness. It's just that it sits in a piece of airspace that's heavily restricted. <laughs> so you have to have special permission, special training to fly in and out of it. But it's always going to be my little airport here. So, Yeah, when I was in Washington, I used to fly out of Hyde Field, which is in the no-fly zone. So. <laughs> Yep. It's a real challenge to fly in Washington airspace. Yeah, that, Hyde Park, uh, Potomac Air Park, College Park, you know, all those airports. Uh, they're great little airports, a lot of history. Hell, the, the Wright brothers were in at College Park. And so it's, uh, it is one of those airports that you, you hate to see that kind of history get bulldozed for a, a shopping center. Yep, no question. But I am back on my pet peeve, my friend. I was flying on a name brand carrier last night once again. And you and I have talked about it on previous shows. And, of course, as the flight attendant was giving her briefing, they decided to defer to the passenger safety card with regard to oxygen masks for passengers. So, of course, I looked at the safety card, and the safety card is still the old card doesn't talk anything about having a personal mask and they don't give any kind of verbal highlight as to what somebody should do. And it gets back to my point that if you don't speak the language or you're not accustomed to flying, you don't know what that passenger safety card says because all it is is pictures. But, you know, now you're wearing a personal mask and it doesn't show a picture of a person wearing a personal mask. Yeah, somebody's got to step up like the Department of Transportation or the FAA and to clarify all of that because it looks like we're going to be wearing masks for quite a while now. Yeah, and and we're coming into a busy travel season. So you're going to have a lot of one-time flyers. That is somebody that only flies maybe one or two times a year. They're not really familiar with it. I mean, for those of us that are in business travel, I mean, yeah, okay, we got it. We've heard it a thousand times and that kind of stuff. But, you know, when the when the flight attendant deferred to the safety card, I looked around, people around me, nobody flinched at even pulling that safety card out of the back pocket and taking a look at it. So it's just, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like much. And I got uh, an email or we got an email from a guy who's a captain at a, an airline trying to school us and challenging you know, our qualifications about airline operations and and oxygen mask protocols. And it's just like, one, we're not talking about the cockpit. Two, we're talking about the passengers. And typically when the door closes, that cockpit door closes, you really don't know what's going on in the back. You aren't looking at the demographic of the people. And, and again, I don't mind learning something, but 
don't school me if you don't have the facts. And uh, you and I are, are fact-based guys. We got challenged a couple of other times, which is fine. I mean, I, I'll take criticism left, right, and center. But, you know, if you're going to criticize me or criticize us and challenge us, you better have the facts because you and I are very fortunate that we still have a lot of connections in the industry. So when you and I talk about stuff and we tell the backstories or we talk about things, it's based on fact. It isn't, well, let's tell them a good story. It's not like that. It's based on, hey, this is what we know. This is what we've confirmed. And this is what you're going to say. And all we're trying to do is just promote aviation safety. You know, so it uh, it is one of those things, John. You and I, we continually have these conversations both on and off the air about what's going on in the industry right now. Some of it is just either crazy, nonsensical, or just, you know, a, a total disregard <laughs> for for what aviation safety is all about. Yep. A common sense is thrown out the window sometimes and just in order to get the operation done. Well, I, I would like to, uh, for our audience, we spoke a few weeks ago about the Ethiopian accident and the report that they put out. It appeared to be the final report because it had the probable cause. But I just ran that trap line again this week. And there, in fact, is going to be another report issued by Ethiopia. And I was told the next three or four weeks. Well, that's going to make for interesting conversation with you and me. Because, of course, we're going to take the previous interim final report and compare it to the final final report. And we will see what the Ethiopians have come up with. Hopefully they have, you know, changed some of their uh, thoughts and, and positions based on their interim final because it, like the Indonesian report, looks like it was reverse engineered to blame the aircraft and MCAS when the, the real issues in both of those accidents lie with uh, the four pilots that were operating those two aircraft. In the training syllabuses that the respective airlines use to train those pilots. Not that the airplane didn't have its own problems, but runaway trim has been with us since the 50s. And having a pilot not being able to recognize and deal with the runaway trim is it's just sort of beyond belief. We'll get to pick it apart soon enough. Yeah, no, it's just that the buzz term MCAS has overshadowed the fact that this is basically just a glorified runaway trim. You treat it the same way in a literally a two to five second procedure. And that is if the trim starts moving and you're not commanding it and Charlie sitting next to you isn't commanding it, you turn it off and then figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yes. Decision making. Big airplanes, little airplanes, it doesn't matter. In fact, this show is being brought to everybody by Avemco, who's one of our sponsors. And Avemco has been trying to educate pilots in decision-making for a long time, like 60 years. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, the insurance company, you know, a lot of people, I just don't understand it, John, sometimes. The insurance company, because insurance companies like Avemco, who are, you know, in the business of insuring aircraft and pilots, but they also end up keeping statistics based on the losses that they have to pay out. They understand what it is that is causing these losses, whether it's a simple fender bender type accident, loss control or hard landing or something to that or a dinged prop, 
to the catastrophic failure of either the pilot's performance or the aircraft performance or a combination of both that result in a uh, catastrophic loss. But they look at training. Look, I had a Vemco for a very long time. I'm looking to have them on another airplane I'm getting. And the big thing that I liked about it was, one, I had to have an, you know a certain amount of time because I flew a Comanche for over 20 years. Comanche has uh, some unique characteristics. It's not like a Piper Arrow. It's definitely not like any other Cherokee. I mean, it was a slick airplane, a laminar flow wing. It was fast, but it and it always wanted to fly. And you had to fly that particular airplane even when the airplane was on the ground because as long as you had any, any airspeed above 40 knots, that wing tried to fly. You release the back pressure on landing, you're going up on your nose. And you know, a lot of insurance companies, including a Vemco, you know, you're having collapsed landing gears, you're dinging props and stuff because people didn't learn those techniques. And I remember when I applied for my insurance and I wanted other pilots on my policy, they make sure that I had 10 hours of time in a Comanche. And I had to make sure that the other guys had uh, 10 or more hours in a Comanche before they would let me put them either in an open pilot status or a name pilot on my on my insurance. And I didn't look at that as, you know, oh, they're trying to milk me for more money. They're trying to put too many restrictions on me. I saw that as a learning opportunity because it gave me an opportunity, even if it's considered, quote, a forced opportunity by the insurance company, it gave me an opportunity to become a better pilot, especially in that airplane, since I was going to be flying it all the time. And I had other people that were going to be flying it. And the last thing we wanted to do was ding it up. That mandatory additional training can go a long way to preventing lots of other problems, not just the landing gear issue, but, you know, decision making all throughout the flight envelope. Pre-planning, too. Absolutely. I mean, it, it forced you to, to be a pilot. It, it said, this is what we want you to do. This is the way, you know, we expect that you're going to operate this aircraft to an extent because we're going to insure you. The other thing I liked was the fact that I got a 5% discount for doing online courses like through AOPA. I mean, those are the kind of benefits. I mean, I like going in and doing the online courses. Um, AOPA did a good job, and there's another uh, number of other companies that do a great job in putting training materials together that are online, interactive. You take a test, you get a certificate, and then you you provide it to the insurance company, and it helped reduce my rates as well as uh, the other pilots that were flying on my uh, on my policy. I like that stuff because, as we all know, that, you know, as soon as you get a pilot's license, not license is not a license to quit learning something. You just go out and fly. It is a license to learn. You read about it all the time. You hear that phrase all the time. And the insurance company actually incorporates it when they're underwriting a policy saying, look, we want you to have this training. We want to make sure that you are the best pilot you can be in that particular airplane. So we're going to set these standards. And instead of pushing back, pilots should embrace that opportunity to learn. Yeah, it, it may be inconvenient. It may be forced. It, you know, you may think, oh, I've already spent all this money on insurance and the airplane. Why do I have to do this? And, and that's really the wrong attitude. And as you said, John, part of decision making is attitude. 
And if you have the wrong attitude, you're going to probably make the wrong decision. We have seen, you and I and all the other investigators have seen time and time again how important decision-making can be, how important just sitting down and planning out your flight before you even take off is. Going through the steps, all of these steps we have learned over time at the expense of other people. A lot of crashes, a lot of, of people have lost their life because they didn't follow those steps, like common sense steps, pre-planning your flight, all right, your decision-making. You know, understand where you're going to go immediately after takeoff if you have an engine failure, which is not uncommon. So the engine's going through, suddenly being asked to put out a lot of power. And, uh, I mean, we just had, we had one of those in Texas not too long ago. I mean, you need to know what you're going to do after takeoff. It's a lot easier to figure out what's around the airport uh, before you do it and instead of finding out at 1,500 feet you've got a, a problem and you need to figure out what you're going to do. And there's not a lot of time at, you know, sometimes even 500 feet above the ground to figure out what you're going to do. You need to think about that before you get there. A lot of these actions that we're trained to perform as pilots have to be basically a rote reaction. You lose the engine at 200 feet, you're not pulling a checklist out. And if you start, and I do this all the time in safety presentations, I'll, you know, I put that scenario out to a lot of people and I'll pick somebody out of the audience and I kind of put them on the spot and I say, hey, we're going to fly together. Okay. And you're going to show me how this airplane flies. We take off. Next thing you know, boom, the engine quits at 200 feet. What are you going to do? And I start going, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And they momentarily freeze. And I said, you just killed us. And they look at me like, what are you talking about? I said, you just killed us because this airplane stalled. Because the first thing you have to do in any airplane, especially a little airplane, is if you lose that engine at 200 feet, what's most counterintuitive to a pilot? Shoving the nose over. <laughs> but you got to get that nose down to get that airspeed because that is life. Once that happens and you got the airplane under control and you maintain that control, if you have time, you can do everything else. You don't have airspeed. You don't have control. Nothing else matters. And oftentimes you might even be able to land right on the overrun of the runway at some airports, you know. I didn't have that luxury in the airport I flew. It was like 2,500 feet or something, I forget. I forget. You were flying with the Wright brothers, though. Weren't you flying off the grass? <laughs> yes, on the grass. I learned to fly on grass. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. That or sand. I think it was sand for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, a funny thing about it, too, is uh, I, I was always uh, – I don't know if nervous is the right word, but I always preferred to go if I was going to go cross country or go someplace to go for the dirt, for the grass strips and not the asphalt. And I don't know what that was all about, but I, I can remember doing that more than once. You know, as a result of one of our, our listeners, one, more than one listener sending in suggestions, for this week, I asked you to do the American Eagle 4184. And what I would like to do is let's start, you know, when the, when the whistle goes off, what you knew, what happened when you landed. We'll run it up to the point where the voice recorder and flight data recorder information were coming back to you. Because in typical fashion, you're about a day or, or a little more after the recorders are recovered 
before you get that information, we get some raw data from both of them and it's sent back to you, the investigator in charge. I know of many times I had my special assistant for years would go on every accident and he would be the person carry back the, the boxes as soon as they were found. Yeah. Keeping the, the custody chain unbroken, so to speak, because it can be a legal proceeding at some time and the lawyers will have a field day if the NTSB did not have in their possession those boxes. And, you know, those those come into play where there is a suspected intentional act. That is, uh, either somebody's intentionally tried to take the airplane down, hijackings um, in the one case with the PSA BA-146 back in the 80s where a disgruntled employee got on the airplane and shot the flight crew. Those boxes, because those kinds of intentional acts are no longer, quote, an accident. They are an intentional act of crime. It's a federal crime. So now the, the information on the boxes becomes evidence in a, in a criminal proceeding rather than an accident investigation. Yes. So why don't we take it? This was a late afternoon accident. So you got the call in the evening. Yep, I was uh, I was on duty, and it happened to be Halloween. It was October 31st. I had the duty. We had the uh, the team on standby, and uh, I got a phone call around seven o'clock that night that we had lost an ATR 72, 68 people on board American Eagle, going into Chicago. At that time, we were again. It was a little primitive. We had this tie line, or what we called the bridge, through the FAA, where we got all of the appropriate players on board from the NTSB, the FAA. We had some airline folks on there as well, trying to get a, an up brief on what we knew as far as the latest information. And again, at that time, we typically had a two-hour launch window. So when we were on duty, it was then my responsibility to make sure the team was notified, all of those team members that were on standby, were notified to be at Hangar 6 at Reagan National uh, Airport because that's where the FAA maintains their hangar with their aircraft. The board has the, the privilege of utilizing the FAA aircraft to transport the team to the accident. So it was my responsibility to make sure that the team was there on time. One of the I guess the coincident things when uh, we got notified because the aircraft, like you said, John, it did crash late in the afternoon. The weather was lousy in that particular area. These guys had been sitting in a holding pattern and crashed in an open farm field in Roselawn, Indiana, about 60 plus miles from Chicago. We had a number of investigators, management, and including the chairman at the time, Jim Hall, all in Chicago for a meeting. And um, it was just coincident that when this accident happened, they were able to uh, to drive over and get a firsthand look at it while the team was en route. Right. So you, you're at the airport. You got everybody on board the airplane and you land now in Indiana. It must be after midnight by this time. Yeah, it was late. Fortunately, we picked up a little bit of time, you know, as far as time zones, uh, picked up some time going out. The The thing that we try to do as the investigator in charge is we 
brief the team on the airplane as to, okay, what are we going to do? Well, given the fact we were getting in late at night, there wasn't a whole lot we could do, especially out of the accident site. We weren't going to go out and take a look at it. So we wanted to get as much information up brief to us from local authorities, crash, fire, rescue, police departments, and that kind of thing, to see what we had as far as at least reliable information at that point. It's a choreographed dance for the team, especially the investigator in charge, to make sure that the next morning activity, which in this case, the early morning activity, was going to be the organizational meeting. So that's where we try to get everybody, not only the NTSB and the FAA folks that are going to be working on the investigation, but any potential party to the investigation. And of course, because this was a French-built airplane, the BEA from France, as well as ATR, were sending people over to participate in the investigation. So all of that coordination took place first thing in the morning. And then uh, once, once the organization meeting had concluded several hours later, the teams were chosen, who was going to be on what team, what parties were going to participate in the investigation. Then the actual work really begins was going out during the accident site. We did take a tour of the accident site. It was uh, it was a farm field that had been out. I think it was a cornfield, uh, if I remember right, or an alfalfa field. But um, it was just uh, packed dirt. But it was a 20-acre field, and the airplane had hit so hard, it totally disintegrated over a very large area of this 20-acre field. All right, so now, Greg, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, you mentioned that the, the French manufacturer and the, and the French government accident board dispatching people to the scene. Now, obviously, they could not get to the scene uh, for the first thing in the morning when you held your briefing. So do you hold up your investigation waiting for them? Typically, we will begin the investigation once the uh, the folks from France arrived, my responsibility is the IIC is to bring them up to speed as to what's already been done, what information we already have, um, what is going to proceed as far as the investigation, and then depending on how many folks they've brought with them, because it's not only the BEA, which is the NTSB equivalent, but the DGCA, which is the FAA equivalent, they're going to have folks there. And then, of course, ATR has brought some folks. So we'll try to disseminate them on some of the active working teams. The BEA will have a coordinator. The uh, ATR will have a coordinator. And so will the DGCA or the DGAC. And in all of those cases, we are working in concert to manage our folks in the respective groups to get the uh, the investigation continuing to move forward. We don't typically hold it up because we have a lot of times limited resources, limited time. And in this case, we had some, uh, I won't say it was bad weather, but it was not favorable weather conditions. So, you know, you're working against the clock and mother nature in some instances. Now I will say, John, that this was one of the first accidents. I think it was the first accident, first major investigation the board conducted where we had implemented the biohazard protocol. And that in and of itself 
was a very big learning curve for all of us. We we had all been trained on biohazards and that kind of stuff, but this was going to be the first accident where we had to cordon off the entire accident site. We had to set up basically a guarded gate. So it was a one-way in, one-way out checkpoint and determine who would be eligible to be on scene. Um, poopy suited. That is, you had to be in a biohazard suit, but you also had to have had proper training and you also had to have all your shots that were required tetanus and things like that. And um, I remember, again, because this was the first one, we scrambled, we got the, we had a, a semi tractor trailer come in and bring in all sorts of hazardous material gear for the team and everything else. And and so it was a real exercise, but I think it worked out well. And a lot of the pictures that you see on the internet and in, in the report, you see all of us in the white biohazard suits out at the accident site, including the chairman, when we had him out there and his special assistant briefing them so that they could brief the press. Yes. And actually, I used those procedures that you've set up uh, at that site to train the, the uh, machinist unions, accident investigation people. Uh, we were the first maintenance group to, to uh, formally embrace accident investigation as, as something that we were interested in. And I had the, had the joy of setting up the biohazard training, reaching out to a number of, of organizations to help us through all that. Yeah, site safety is one of the biggest concerns in any accident investigation because of the hazardous environment that you're working in. And the, and the hazardous environment doesn't necessarily mean being on the side of a mountain. It means being in an environment. I mean, when I did Value Jet, we had, you know, Jet A, we had Sky Draw, we had human debris floating around in the Everglades. That's the environment. And, and in this particular instance in Roselawn, we had jet fuel, we had sky droll, and of course, we had human remains uh, in this farm field. So these areas were all declared biohazards. Uh, of course, the concern at that time of, uh, was, you know, uh, getting AIDS and, and HIV and a number of other communicable diseases because you just you're working in an environment of of people and remains and you just don't know what or who is contaminated with what so we employed those and to this day the board still uses those protocols um they've changed a bit over the years but uh, for the most part uh, the board still employs those protocols in the conduct of the on-scene portion of the investigation yes okay so now the French have showed up. The first day is going on. About when did you find the, re the recorders? Because of the destruction of the airplane, um, it was relatively easy to find the boxes. Um, again, it was an open field. Part of the airplane had separated in flight. The rest of the aircraft had uh, a very high energy impact and then disintegrated. So all of the component parts that we were looking for, of course, the FDR and CBR, which are mounted in the tail, we were able to find relatively easy because the largest part of that aircraft was the tail section that had survived. So the boxes were found in pretty short order, and the uh, the, the boxes were then taken back to D.C. via the G-4 that had brought the team to the accident site. So by the end of the first day, the boxes are back in D.C., 
and you're still picking through the field looking for debris. Now, you mentioned that uh, the airplane came apart in flight. How did you determine that? Well, one, when we got out and we started surveying the uh, the debris, we saw that uh, a large portion of the uh, empennage was relatively intact, but it was on the wrong side of the impact crater. That is, this airplane, when it struck the ground, was at a uh, nose-low, uh, relatively wings-low attitude, going in at a very high rate of speed. And one of the um, one of the basic premises of of impact is the airplane will strike the ground, and as it breaks up, it it is thrown or distributed via whatever residual energy is left in the uh, in the parts in a fan-shaped pattern. So you have an impact mark in the dirt, and then all the debris is thrown forward along the intended route of flight. What we found was that the tail section, the the horizontal stabilizer and uh, elevators and portions of the vertical stabilizer, were on the backside of that impact crater, not the front side, which suggested to us that they had failed or at least were separated in flight from the rest of the aircraft before the main impact of the predominant part of the airplane. So at the end of the first day, were you aware of that? Yes, just by walking around the uh, the accident site, surveying it to see um, where everything was, trying to account for uh, the largest pieces that we could account for. And then, of course, looking for the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder. The systems structures power plant group chairman then respectively went out and documented all that wreckage and were able to uh, to then verify or validate that the tail section had separated. Do you remember how many teams you had? I mean, we had power plants for sure. We had ops, human performance, which basically is in conjunction with operations. We had weather, we had ATC, power plant systems, structures, and... Maintenance records. Yeah, the maintenance records. We didn't have any kind of uh, cabin safety or anything like that just because of the total destruction of the aircraft. I think those were the predominant groups that those group chairmen traveled with the team initially. And then as we got into the investigation, I believe we we created subgroups to start looking at uh, the aircraft certification more in depth because uh, certification of the aircraft at that time, it was icing conditions, but it was later determined to be freezing rain and freezing drizzle. Um, of course, back in Washington, we had our engineering group working. So we had flight data recorder, cockpit voice recorder specialists working. We have aircraft performance folks that were working on aircraft performance as far as what was going on with the airplane as they were uh, in the holding pattern, trying to determine what the loss of control was. So you have both on-scene groups doing some uh, activities, and then there are also groups that are in Washington. The FDR and CVR are read out in D.C., so the groups are assembled in D.C. at NTSB headquarters when those, when those boxes are read out. Yes, and, and it's an initial read. We've got to be clear about that to everybody. Because these boxes can be complicated sometimes because the companies 
can introduce some of their own software into the later versions of the digital boxes. It's important that we recognize the fact that those initial readings may change and oftentimes do change. Yeah, you bring up a good point, John. When the boxes first get back to D.C., they are what's called auditioned or previewed. That is, they they run the boxes through a series of protocols to make sure that the recordings are good. They get some initial data to try and feed back to the team so that it gives us, the investigators, at least an idea of where to look or at least focus the initial stages of the investigation. Again, it's an open-ended investigation. That is, everything is, is on the table. It's fair game to be examined. But if we can find out from either the cockpit voice recorder and or the FDR, the flight data recorder, as to, okay, well, the crew talked about a, a, a loss of a system or they had an engine problem, that helps us focus the on-site activities so that the guys who are looking at maybe the engines, the propellers, or some sort of aircraft system, they can start focusing their attention on, you know, looking at for failures or at least abnormal operations. So that initial information coming back to the team gives us a direction for the team to at least start moving down that particular path. And I want to make it clear to everybody, too, that the NTSB has a standard protocol, which most of the investigators follow. And even though you get information from one of the two recorders, that doesn't stop you from turning over all the other rocks that you normally would, because you've got to ask and answer a whole battery of questions that come up during the course of investigation that are separate from the recorders. And the goal is to gather as many facts as you can during the on-scene portion so that you can review them in, in uh, detail later and discount those that had no effect on the accident. A very simplified way of looking at that, John, is having each respective investigator and group asking the why questions, that is W-H-Y, the why questions, till you can't ask any more why questions. Well, why did that wing come off? Because of this. Well, why did that happen? Because of this. Well, how did that happen? Or why did that happen? When you run out of the why questions, you're pretty much at the beginning of the sequence of events. Yes. Uh, the five W's are very important. Who, what, when, where, and why. Yep. And the why being, you know, real critical because that's where you're going to look for supporting evidence to answer those questions. You can't just say, well, you know, the, the wing came off. Well, why did it come off? Well, you know, because the pilots pulled too hard during a high-speed descent. Okay, that's not the end of it. Why did they pull too hard? Were they flying the airplane properly? Did they get disoriented? I mean, there's a lot of other, you know, offshoot questions that need answers. And that's the thoroughness and the, and the methodical process of accident investigation. You can't just go with the obvious whys. Right. And I've been lamenting that on these some of our podcasts. And I did all the years I was with the NTSB and, you know, asking the management of the accident investigation branch, the ones that you worked for, why do we stop? the investigations into maintenance at the hangar doors. Why don't we go back past the hangar doors? Why don't we look at why a mechanic failed to follow procedures? Why don't we look at what factors led up to him 
failure to, his failure to follow procedures. And, and we don't, and we still don't. We take it up to the, to the hangar doors and we stop it. Yep, maintenance made a mistake and that's the end of it. We have all these human factors, people of the board, human performance and so on. I wish they would start applying some of that technique to the hangar because we're having the same problems over and over in the hangar with people too. And you bring up a good point, John, because when you have a major investigation like Rose Lawn or any of the other big accidents where the team is launched, you have a lot of different subject matter experts, not only from the NTSB, but from the FAA and then any of the designated parties. Where we fall short, or I should say where the NTSB has always fallen short, is when you're looking at general aviation accidents, smaller airplanes. Why? Because you have one NTSB investigator going out. You're going to maybe have an FAA guy. You'll have a couple party representatives, one from the aircraft manufacturer, maybe one from the engine manufacturer, whatever. They don't do what the team does where they have a particular subject matter that they're going to dissect infinitum. The field investigators are more generalist. They're collecting a wide range of information. So when I go out as the investigator in charge, going to look at a beach bonanza that killed five people, I'm going to be looking at operations. I'm going to be looking at weather. I'm going to be looking at systems, structures, power plants. I'm going to be looking at ATC. I'm going to be looking at all of these things as an individual. I may get assistance from some of the other parties, and I may even get assistance from the board if I need more technical information like um, aircraft performance. But for the most part, that's where general aviation accidents fall short and really dissecting those why questions. And that's why you and I have talked about this, and we've been so critical of the board, especially in the recent past, where they're not even going out or they weren't going out to accident sites to collect the good stuff on scene. How are you going to answer all those why questions if you were never at the accident site and you didn't see the airplane at the accident site in its pristine accident condition? Scraping it up, manhandling it, dropping it off in a salvage yard, sticking it in a container, you, you just induce so much damage that you really can't ferret out what was done in the course of the accident versus what was done in the recovery. So, Greg, by the end of the second afternoon on scene, the second day, actually, information should have been coming to you from Washington about the content of the flight data recorder and the voice recorder. So tell me how you would handle that at the end of the day. Typically, uh, I got briefed as the investigator in charge by Washington as to some of the cursory information that they were able to pick off of both recorders. In this case, the valuable information came from the cockpit voice recorder because they were able to audition it and hear that the crew had been talking about the fact that they were in some icing conditions and that they had exercised the uh, de-icing equipment on the airplane. So right there, that starts to cue us that, okay, the airplane's in ice. We know we had some level of loss of control because it came screaming out of the sky at such a high rate of speed from 10,000 feet. Of course, the weather folks are dissecting the weather, trying to determine exactly what kind of icing conditions. Were they continuous icing conditions? Were they at all of the altitudes that this airplane had been flying at? And the systems and structures and the power plant guys 
are, of course, looking to see if these guys, when they turned on the de-icing equipment, was there some sort of failure or abnormal operation of the de-icing equipment that led them to believe that everything was operating normally, but in fact it wasn't. So you had multiple groups working off of select pieces of information that came off the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder to then provide more focus for their activities in their respective subject matter. Okay. So that would have been accomplished at at the night meeting at the end of the second day and probably reinforced in the morning briefing before the start of the third day. And that would have changed what everybody was looking at to a certain extent. Yeah. And again, now, I mean, you got air traffic control. So they're over there talking to uh, the air traffic controllers who are handling the flight. Was there anything telltale in the communication? Why were you stacking airplanes? So they're trying to get an understanding of what was going on in the airspace. We were trying to determine why they were stacking airplanes. And that's because the arrival rate at Chicago O'Hare, they couldn't use all the runways. So those arrival rates Typically, let's say you're handling 120 airplanes on all your runways per hour in good weather. Well, when the weather starts to deteriorate and depending on how bad it gets, you could knock those arrival rates in half down to 60 airplanes an hour or even lower. And so all of a sudden now, you can't accommodate all the airplanes that are coming in during a one-hour period. So you got to put them in holding patterns. And that's actually what was happening with this particular flight, 4184, because they had come out of Indianapolis and they were late coming out of Indy because of weather and a ground hold. They got in the air, but then they were put in a holding pattern 60 miles southeast of of Chicago. So there's the there's where the storyline really starts to percolate because when they got into the hold, we're looking at the weather that they were holding in because that's where the event initiated the loss of control. And that was where the the focus of weather, the actions and interactions of not only the crew members uh, with each other, but their respective actions with the operation of the airplane. Okay. So in this type commuter aircraft with these turboprop engines on it has a lower efficiency de-icing system or anti-icing system than any of the commercial airplanes. Now, most people may not know that bigger airplanes use hot air inside the wings to keep the ice from collecting on the wing. And the leading edge can get quite hot because of the, the bleed air off the engines. But turboprop engines cannot bleed off as much air as the big engines. So that the manufacturers had to come up with another way to break the ice that typically forms on the leading edge of the wing. And the way they do that is they have rubber boots, which are like balloons on the front of the wing. And as they're flying along, when they activate the de-icing system, these boots expand not across the entire wing, but in sections piece at a time and they cycle and they blow up just a couple of inches, not even that much. And then they deflate back down and get flat again. And it's meant just to, like you do on your car sometimes, just to break the hold of the ice against the surface and then the slipstream will blow it away. Yeah, it's to loosen it. It's to, to crack it or break it. Yes, and it blows away. And just remember, John, on this particular airplane, not only were the leading edges 
they had the de-ice boots on the leading edges of the wings. They had the de-icing boots on the leading edges of the horizontal stabilizers and the vertical stab. And then with these turbo props, some of them have an inboard boot on the smile, what's what's called the smile sometimes, which is the inlet nacelle for the engines and uh, the propellers are electrically heated. So this this airplane you know, has a lot of de-icing equipment on it for these very reasons. Now, the main purpose for the smile de-icing or the inlet and the props uh, has two purposes. On the prop, you cut down the efficiency of the propeller by putting ice on it, but you can also shed that ice at the wrong moment and have it get sucked into the engine, and that can become a... Uh, a piece of foreign object into the engine and it can destroy the engine and has destroyed engines. The same thing with the intake. So they want to make sure to minimize uh, the possibility of any chunks of ice getting in the engine. In fact, we've lost a number of MD-80s because of the flat wing design of the MD-80 compared to the DC-9 and they sucked ice off the wing right into the engine and blew the engines apart on the tail of the airplane. Yeah, and that was there was a propensity for that to happen for a long time. How did they correct that situation? They put heating blankets inside the tank, inside the fuel tank, to heat the underside of the uh, top surface of the wing so that the ice would not form. And you can't believe how quick it would form. I've seen a couple of inches of ice form in like 30 minutes on the gate on a very humid day when the airplane came down from altitude and he had a lot of fuel still on the airplane. So you have super cold fuel in the wing and it happens to be touching the top of the wing close to the airplane. And then all this moist air will just condense immediately and turn to ice on top of the wing. And it's so clear and so flat because it hasn't been disturbed by wind or, or droplets of water or whatever, you can't even see it. Yep. It's real slick. It's smooth. And I remember working a couple of accidents. One, I think it was a 727. And, you know, we walked out to the airplane sitting on the ramp and they said that airplane's covered with ice. And you look out and you go, yeah, where? Well, you'd have to stand back and just look at a certain angle to get the sun reflecting off it. You could, you could see the sheen of ice all over the airplane. So some of it is very insidious. And, and that's why in this particular instance, because these guys were flying in, um, in a varied cloud deck, which the weather folks really dissected, they did a great job in dissecting the weather, which was a critical factor in this accident. That played into how effective or ineffective the de-icing system was on this airplane, which eventually formed the basis for part of the probable cause and subsequent recommendations. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. I'm looking at the clock right now, and I, I don't want to start the flight data recorder because in one of our previous podcasts, we went through the all the events leading up to the recorder, and then we were so cramped for time that uh, I, I felt we didn't give it a good airing. So let's finish the on-scene portion of this and without talking about the recorders, and then in the next segment, uh, next week's segment, we'll do a detailed analysis of the flight data recorder, because I want to make sure that we convey as much information as we can. Sounds good.
So we're at day three, and now you're looking through the wreckage. You're continuing to gather as much factual information as you can, and you're keeping an eye on what kind of data that the recorders have given us to give a little extra focus on that. Now, how long did this on-scene investigation last? Do you remember? Uh, we, I believe we were there a little over a week. Typically, because we were, again, we still had a lot of wreckage to go through. There was still a lot of on-scene activities to take place that could be done from Roselawn rather than in D.C. Now, as the investigation progresses and a particular group finishes whatever work they can possibly do at the accident site, the group puts together a collective notes, which are uh, chaired by an NTSB group chairman, but all of the parties will add their comments into these what's called field notes. Everybody agrees this is all the information that they were able to collect in their respective activity. And once that occurs, then that group is disbanded. It's not, it, it's released from the accident site, but it's not disbanded from the accident investigation itself because there could be subsequent activities that take place. Plus, these groups, they may not stay intact as far as people being face to face. The group stays together throughout the entire process, all the way to the final report, because it's up to that particular group and all of the participants in that group activity to sign off on the final group chairman report, which is a detailed discussion of all of the factual information that that group gathered during the course of their activities on scene and throughout whatever subsequent tests or examinations needed to be done. And that, again, was a lengthy process because not only were we trying to understand whether or not the aircraft systems were working properly, that is the de-icing system, but when we started to get into a lot of the aerodynamic certification for airplanes flying in certain weather conditions, that was a very in-depth, time-consuming, labor-intensive endeavor, which we'll talk about at the end of this accident summary. Now, were there any other major revelations in the final few days? <laughs> well, there's always revelations. Uh, <laughs> Uh, one of the one of the stories there was, uh, and again, the investigator in charge has a responsibility to make sure that all of the parties to the investigation understand the rules of how the board conducts its investigation, and then it has to ensure that regardless of who it is, including the FAA, who is an automatic party, if anybody steps out of line and they aren't willing to play by the NTSB rules then they jeopardize having their uh, their party status revoked. And I had to do that. <laughs> and it created a big stir. So that was one of those sidebar events that I had to deal with because I had an issue with an FAA representative. That sidetracked me in dealing with not only my bosses and, of course, the chairman, but uh, the FAA and their hierarchy had to step in. We had to get the issue resolved so that uh, their folks that were participating could continue to participate. So there's there's a lot of things that can go on, 
You'll never see about uh, anything written about it in a report because it, it has nothing to do with the accident per se. But those are some of the things that an IIC has to deal with. And in this case, it was it, it, it sidetracked me, but the rest of the team was able to keep going and do what they needed to do. But the big thing, John, is that the, the deeper we got into this investigation, it started to become evident that weather and aircraft operation and aircraft certification were going to be the three primary factors that were going to uh, to be the focus of the investigation activities once everybody left the accident site. You mentioned a minute ago about signing the final notes, and I'd like to clear that up for the, the people that don't understand it. So if we sit down and write a set of of factual notes. Remember, the key word here is factual. And we come across a point in the notes where we disagree with what the group is saying. There is a process in place for for that to happen. You want to explain it, Craig? The thing with those notes is that an NTSB group chairman will solicit input in crafting a one set of notes that was collected during the course of the activity. That is, if you have five party members that are working with the group chairman, everybody chimes in, hey, when we when we did this interview of Joe Schmuckatelli, this is what I heard him say, and, and they'll contribute what they believe this person said. Somebody else will say, yeah, I heard him say this, but I also heard him say this. So the input is to make sure you have a very thorough collection of information that was gathered during that activity. Now, what the board requires before the team, that part of the team can be released and leave the accident site is that everybody reviews that set of notes and they have to sign off on that set of notes that they participated in those notes. Now, if let's say you have five party members in the group chairman, let's say four of those party members all agree that they heard a mechanic or not a mechanic, but somebody that they had to interview make a statement. But you have one person who said, I never heard him say that, or that's not exactly what they said. They said this, even though it may be characterized in the notes, the way the four people heard it and the fifth one disagrees, they still are required to sign off on the notes and make a note with their signature that they disagree with certain aspects of those factual notes. The whole purpose is to make sure that everybody that participated in the activity agrees that these are the most complete set of notes. Right, and the work will continue uh, after the on-scene portion to clarify any of those discrepancies. And that's that's the fine-tuning, John. If, if you you know, to, for a lack of better term, that's where that's that's where the information gets fine-tuned. They may go back and and re-interview. They they may talk about it. They may find other factual information that either corroborates or invalidates what somebody may or may not have said. Okay. Can you think of anything else, 
on the on-scene portion? <laughs> I can always think of a lot of things, John. I mean, these these investigations are very in-depth. It, it, it is very time-consuming. And again, you're dealing uh, not only with the folks that are out at the accident site. This was a very devastating accident. And a lot of the NTSB uh, investigators that went out with me as part of the team had never seen this kind of destruction, not only to the aircraft, but of course with the occupants. You know, it takes an emotional toll when when things are this bad because you're working in an environment where you're looking at not only an aircraft part, but that aircraft part may have human debris in it and things like that. So not only do you have to do your job, but the coroner is out there trying to do their job and it can slow the process down. It is a very comprehensive process, but it does take a mental toll on an individual, just as we talked about with like value jet and some of the other accidents that we've talked about on the show. And again, my job as the NTSB investigator in charge is to not only make sure that the investigation moves and moves in, in a choreographed fashion in a particular direction, but it's also to watch to make sure that everybody that is working on the investigation is of sound mind because a lot of things were, were described as PTSD. Um, it's a traumatic event, and that's where um, employee assistance programs and things like that came in. But the on-scene was relatively easy because of the access to the wreckage, but it was really the post-accident or at least the post-on-scene activities that really got in-depth as to what the cause and contributing factors of this accident were. Okay, so this is a good spot to, to stop this, and we'll pick it up in the next podcast for the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder. That's the meat of it. That is what really helped us put a, a storyline together as far as the sequence of events were concerned, because... This was one of those types of accidents where not only did we have this particular accident that we were investigating, but we ended up going back and looking at other similar accidents involving ATR-42s. This was the first ATR-72 to have crashed, and so that in and of itself made it a bit unique, but there were a number of other ATR-42 accidents that were involved flying in these similar type weather conditions, icing and things like that, that we ended up having to go back and take that historical look back to see if there were any common denominators that would help us through the process of this accident investigation. Yes. So we're planning on picking up on that also. This one is probably going to take two or three podcast to get through because uh, you know many people have told us they, they they run too long we've already gone over an hour with this one and we actually had a recent one that went over like an hour and a half so i don't want to burden everybody with too long a podcast so i like to cut this off i want to remind everybody that this podcast is being brought to you by avemco and as an insurance company, I can tell you that they are passionate about pilot safety and have been for some 60 years. And that's why they sponsor 
both the FAA's FAST team and their WINGS program, but now they're sponsoring the Flight Safety Detective podcast. And actually, we've just recently heard that Avemco is going to allow pilots to get a 5% discount instantly on their insurance just for listening to Flight Safety Detectives. Man, that's awesome news. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to sign up, buy two or three more airplanes so that I can get that 5% discount. <laughs> if you're interested in getting some insurance and you want to get some discounts, their phone number is 888-879-0389 or visit avemco.com backslash flight safety and then type in flight safety detectives in the block that says, how did you hear about us? And when you talk to somebody... They will talk to you about a 5%, and actually, we've been talking about a 10% discount. So that's a little premature to say that, but just a 5% is a healthy discount just for listening to us. Oh, absolutely. That's why I, I you know, I always appreciated the 5% discount doing all the stuff that Avemco said to do, because in the long run, it does save you a lot of money. And of course... It is a, a learning experience. So we appreciate Avemco being our sponsor, one of our sponsors, PAMA being one of our other primary sponsors. They always have done a great job for us. We appreciate all of the behind the scenes support that they give us. So to both of them, thank you very much. And to you, the listener, we want to thank you. As always, we appreciate your feedback, you guys. Uh, and that is a generic term, guys, gals. You give us a lot of good feedback. So keep that coming through our email at flight safety detectives with an S on the end at gmail.com. I do appreciate the fact that some people have tried to respond through their podcast providers, but a lot of those messages get lost in the ether. The best way to communicate with us is to send us an email because John and I read those emails. We try to respond as many as possible. Sometimes it's better late than never. I read them when I'm traveling and I'm, I try to respond to them. And I just responded to, I think, a couple of them that are about two months old just because I get so many of them and I try to respond or split it up with John. So keep those emails coming. Keep your suggestions coming. Tell us how we can do a better show, what we should do for a show as far as content. And we will try to program that in. So with that, my friend, as always, I am on the road and I will be uh, traveling all over the country the next couple of weeks. But I will join you again for another podcast of Flight Safety Detectives. So I will leave you with the last word. And I will say the same last words that I've said for the last little bit is please stay safe in your personal life. We're learning how important masks are. So wear the mask. They're now readily available. In fact, I was just in the Staples yesterday, and they had KN95s, 20 of them for $40 or $42 or whatever it was. I bought a box of those already just because they're the best and better than those uh, blue paper ones we've been wearing. So please stay safe in your personal life. And if you're flying, please fly safely. Do your pre-flights. Do your briefing before you take off. Use your head to stay out of trouble. So again, fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org. 
and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening. Got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Introducing Celebration Key, your key to paradise. Unlock Carnival's all-new exclusive destination at Grand Bahama, where you can dive into clear lagoons, try all the water sports, or unwind on a mile-long pristine beach with breathtaking sunset views. This vacation paradise has it all. Celebration Key, welcoming guests in summer 2025. Carnival, choose fun. Copyright 2024, Carnival Corporation, all rights reserved. Ships registry, the Bahamas and Panama. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast.